Have you ever wondered if people will live for hundreds of years? Come see Aubrey de Grey and other prominent scientists at the Lifespan Conference on November 15th in Vancouver, Canada. You'll learn about new advances in human longevity, genomics, and what the future may hold for humankind. Early bird tickets are available now at www.lifespanbc.ca. This is Ink Sense on the Road, and we're in the home of J.H. and Wendy Williams. Thank you so much for having us here. Well, thanks it's for fun. coming. Actually, J.H. Williams III. Um, I think we saw Junior on the trip. So maybe there's a, a good thing of people with the... Oh, yes, junior. we had Ron Reggie Jr. was there, Junior. Oh, okay, okay. It was, a, it was all building up to you. Yeah. Oh, okay. There we go. Got it. Another person who does some uh, 
work on magic. Or magic. Yes, yeah, very good work. Um, what was what was the book that he had that was Manly P. Hall? I'm not sure. Oh, yeah, what that is. Secret. What is it? The secret history of all the ages, or something like that. Uh, yeah, uh, a cult. The t- type of thing okay. that you see in like conspiracy theory documentaries. Yeah. Oh, uh, uh, really okay. fascinating illustrations of people with snake heads and. Uh, <laughs> right. Like, yeah. Or like the reptile oh, pro- people. Yeah, the, the, yeah, the lizard. Not, not no, lizard. no, 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 no. Not, no, not, not the David Icke stuff. No, uh, I was no, no, no. I would, conspiracy <laughs> theory is kind of a bad way to put it. It's like he's just kind of documenting like um, like the different, like the Rosicrucian traditions, the Freemason traditions, uh-huh. and like some of the Hermetic stuff, and kind of just having a book of like illustrations that reflect that. Oh, okay, interesting. Yeah. I'll was, uh, see what that book is. It sounds interesting. It's very pretty. It's worth tracking down just for that. It was kind of amazing. Um, it'd be probably weird for you to be looking at that after you'd done all that work in Promethea. I don't know. I mean, for me, it's like I always that subject is just endlessly fascinating. So I think I, you know, I would be interested in seeing all, you know, all the different types of interpretations of the subject out there. So was that something when um, you and Alan started that book that you kind of like he had? the big ideas and you'd kind of already known a bit about it and kind of jumped in with that or yeah it was pretty much that was how it went I I had an interest in the subject already but not nearly it's sort of like I just screwed around the edge of it where Alan you know when I started working with Alan uh, you know became very immersive and what I found interesting about that whole process is in a lot of the discussions I would have with Alan the fact that I had an interest in it just slightly before ever meeting Alan or knowing what the project was, mm-hmm. Alan, you know, kind of took that like, well, of course you did because that's why we're working together. It was sort of like it was, a, it was inevitable that we would be connected in that way. So, it's, Alan's very much, but there really isn't any coincidences. Yeah, things happen for when they're supposed to so happen for a reason. Yeah, um, <clears throat> I'm thinking the word now. It's been a long week. Sorry. <laughs> right. No, we've, 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 we've had, had experiences. <laughs> Something I was really interested in, maybe it's too early to jump into all this, is that I noticed that a lot of the, the a lot of the writers that you're most well known for for working with, like like uh, Neil Gaiman and Alan Moore, I don't see a lot of their writing styles reflect in your own writing. Your your stuff uh, is much more pared down than theirs. Yeah, I mean. I guess the way some of the influence would come through is less, less in subject, but more in um, structural mm-hmm. aspects. You know, some of the things that we would try to do structurally with the story, or um, structurally with the scripts. Even right. you know, my my scripts are sort of they're pretty dense scripts, um, much more than what you would typically see. That came from working with Alan for six years. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was inevitable that. His script style would rub off on me, you know, because I really appreciated what he right. put into it. And prior working to more, were, when you initially were were excited about getting into comics, was it was was writing something that you were thinking about back then? Um, early on, probably not. But I was kind of was attracted. You know, I was attracted to the art, but it was also very much attracted to the story. Mm-hmm. So, like when I first, you know, was reading comics as a kid, it was all about the story, really. You know, but I was attracted to different art and all that stuff, but not really paying attention to the various differences until, you know, like we were discussing earlier about Micronauts, you know, um, 
I was a big Micronauts toy fanatic as a child. I just had tons of them. And I had already read comics, but it was always the typical stuff. You know, it was like Iron Man or Spider-Man or whatever. A lot of Marvel stuff. Right. Um, and I remember discovering Micronauts number one, walking in. You know, I used to get my comics at like 7-Eleven, convenience spinner rack. Mm -hmm. There was Micronauts number one, and being such a toy crazy person with the toys, I had to buy the comic, and I bought it. And it was the first comic that I read that impacted me in a way that really showed me the, the power of story itself. So yeah, his artwork was what drew me in, of course. And the idea of that was my favorite toys come to life on the page. Right. But the way Bill Mantlow wrote the stories, he didn't dumb it down. Uh -huh. he, you know, even though he, here's a guy, it's amazing what he did. Here's a guy who said, well, I'm doing a comic based on a toy line. But he didn't cheapen it. He didn't, yeah. you know, he brought a lot of intelligence to it. A lot of real heady, um, I don't know, uh, theoretical science involved in there. There's so much stuff going on in there. Like you hear stuff today on, we'll be watching some sort of science fiction, not science fiction, but science program. Mm -hmm. and talking about some sort of new technology or quantum theory stuff. And it was there. It was, he had some of that stuff plugged into it. And that, I mean, that's pretty amazing that, uh, you know, this kid's comic based right. on a toy line had that stuff. And so the story stuff in there really sucked me in. And that's, and, you know, then I ended up discovering Uncanny X-Men with John Byrne and Claremont. And those guys were revolutionizing superhero comics for that time right. with story and stuff. And so that's when I started really immersing the two or in, not immersing but merging the two yeah. you know the art and story together as mm -hmm. one you know and so when I got into comics I was yeah I wanted to draw as well as I could but I always wanted to do engaging stories I wanted to do stories that you know hit the reader the same way I was hit when I was reading that stuff growing up you know and I found that was extremely important to me right do you have any formal training? Um, no. No. No, the only, the only real training I've had as far as art is concerned is um, in high school, I took two years of advertising art and design, and that changed my life entirely in terms of being a visual artist because the teacher, he could care less how well you could draw. Of course, it was important, yeah. but it was all about the idea behind the drawing itself, okay. the thinking involved. And that obviously has had an impact on what I do, you know, in comics. And it didn't become immediately evident in my comics work in my early career, but it was slowly creeping in. And the more projects I got more control over, the more it, you know, revealed itself until, you know, ultimately being on Promethea was the perfect project because we're, I knew going in, Working with someone like Alan, he's gonna. I knew he was gonna be somebody who was gonna be open to whatever I wanted to try to do, right you know. And he was gonna take the challenge and give the challenge back to me, and that really allowed me to bring that mode of thinking of, um, you know, the idea behind the image itself, very much forward. Mm -hmm. So, um, the the scripts from Alan, I mean, we've talked about them there massive mm. tomes um, I've heard some people say like there'll be like three descriptions for one page can be yeah um, 
It's interesting because, like, I think one of the things that Alan found nice or intriguing about working with me was that I was I was very much interested in giving him what he wanted, but I also wanted to make sure I was injecting a lot of myself into it. Yeah. And that's what a lot of people, I think, working with other people who've worked with Alan think is because his scripts are so heavy, so so daunting in information that they have to adhere to every little thing he puts down. But when speaking to him on the phone, because like early on, I'm like, you know, I'm thinking this and this and this, Alan. And he'd be like, if that's how you see it, Jim, go for it. <laughs> you know, he's extremely open. He wasn't so... He, I got the impression that his, he writes all that stuff because he wants you to understand what would be there. Yeah. Not necessarily that it's there on the page, but what could be there. Right. And he wants you to understand the entire atmosphere and feeling and what is behind what yeah. he's, what the important things he's asking you to do yeah. are. Yeah, the, I, again, the ideas behind the story. Right. And I also think he does that much detail for himself. Yes. So he has an understanding that what he has written works, right? Right. And that's, and that's what had influenced my script writing when I started writing my own scripts, I very much think in the same way. You know, I have to understand that if it works here, it should theoretically work visually. And I think that's, um, and I just, when working on that stuff, I relished all that information, but at the same time, he gave me freedom to do what I wanted to do, which was really fantastic. He would literally like, you know, sometimes it was a single panel and it would be three pages. Yes. <laughs> but at the very, like you go into all this detail and, and the, literally the last sentence would be, but if you see it differently, go for it. Go for it. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's, that's just Alan. Yeah. And one of the most, the, the most challenging piece of scripting he gave me was it was, I don't know how he did it and I don't know how I did what I did, but the, the, if, uh, infinity loop Mobius strip page yeah. that was I think three or four pages one paragraph single spaced to describe that entire thing <laughs> and it was I was trying to wrap my head around because he's describing how you would create this Mobius strip and I we couldn't I couldn't he just, I couldn't, he just got a ribbon and yeah, yeah. I, I couldn't figure it. I, it was so much information that was the one thing one piece of scripting he did that broke my mind because I couldn't, I couldn't read it all and understand it. So we actually had to create physically our own Mobius strip, and I drew that. And what was funny is when Alan saw it, he's like, he was fascinated by it because he goes, he's, I described a working Mobius strip, but you drew a different working Mobius strip. And I find that very interesting. And, and my script and my dialogue still works. <laughs> so you know, yeah. Yeah. Uh, did, the, did you explain to him that's because you're like, yeah, because that was a lot to deal with. <laughs> I just like, okay, Alan Gray, I'm glad you're happy. <laughs> like, send a photo next time, jerk. <laughs> <laughs> well, what's interesting about working with Alan, because I know in the past that he would do his own thumbnails and then mm -hmm. write his scripts from those, because he's a visual artist himself. Yeah. Right. But he never, ever showed me that stuff. He never wanted me to see what his thumbnails were, which I thought was kind of interesting. Yeah. Because, um, like, RVP card would send people how he wants that page to look. Right. Like, very different stuff from 
Um, yeah. But still, like... Yeah, very hands-on, more hands-on. Where It's almost like, to me, as, as deeply um, interested in story and profound storytelling that Alan is, particularly with comics and stuff, I almost got the impression that once he's written it, then it's going to be whatever it's going to be after that. It's yeah. kind of like he lets it go in a way. It's re- really interesting. Well, one of the neat things with him is you can tell when he's writing to an artist's strengths. Mm-hmm. Um, like some stuff may just be like, it's a paycheck, you know, mm-hmm. that. And then like with you, one of the folks, it's like obviously like there's a partnership and he's like, right, right. and do you find that like working through Promethea, like he was kind of seeing what you're doing. Oh, and yes. To, like, yeah, if you look at the first script, the first script was, I don't know how many pages, at least 80, between 80 and 100 pages, and nothing of, like, Jim's design was in there, and then I think it was right about the third script, that he was picking up on what you were doing, and he started putting in some border designs, and, you different know, ideas. yeah, different ideas and stuff, and then it just kind of, you guys kind of fed off each other from that point. Yeah, we got to the point where we would talk on the phone before he would start writing uh, scripts and stuff I would be thinking about would find its way in there. Um, so it was pretty cool. Particularly when we got to the whole, you know, middle section, the whole Kabbalah quest stuff. Yeah. You know, each of those issues, you know, he would tell me about, oh, this is what this issue, this chapter needs to be about. And I'm like, oh, well, you know, I'm thinking about, that makes me think of this sort of art style and this sort of thing. And, that, that, and then that would find its way into the actual script, nice. you know, which is cool. Um, I, I, I think that's the only way we could have actually gotten, particularly in the last chapters of that story where, you know, when you get to the, to the woodblock sort of stuff and then it get, goes down to the grayscale sort of stuff, down to just white and gold, it's like you're peeling the layers back yeah. of mm-hmm. the layers of an illustration in a way. And therefore that was sort of like peeling back the layers of reality, right? There's, I don't think there's any way you could have gotten that without that kind of communication. So it sounds like you guys had like a lot of freedom. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Wildstorm. Alone. Yeah, Wildstorm is was not going to dictate to Alan what he should or should not do. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's. What was that? Neighbor. Oh, ghosts. Ghosts. <laughs> but you know, it's yeah. And Alan's one of those writers. It's like he doesn't really need editing. You know, he yeah. knows he knows what he's doing. Yeah. So. How long were you guys working together? Uh, we worked together for about six plus years. Yeah, okay, I can't cool. remember exactly how many years. That's a long time. Yeah. Well, and your partnerships with him is one of his longest. Yeah. Um, yeah. Probably the longest of just like. Modern. Well, of of working with one specific person. Yeah, maybe small things. Kevin O'Neill would be. Yeah. Probably out done that now for sure, because the league I, has been going on for since the beginning of the ABC line. So. Yeah. Did you go right into? What was it? What was immediately after when we did it? Was it Desolation Jones? Yeah, Desolation okay. Jones and Seven Soldiers came along around that time too. Was that a was that a really abrupt feeling to 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 go from those projects? Yeah, it was. But at the same time, I relished it because I really wanted something that was extremely different mm-hmm. yeah. than Promethea. I did not want just a repeat. You know, when you're on something for that long, you know, you want to you want to look for something that's completely a different animal and that's what was so great about working on desolation jones it really was so yeah. different um was that ellis yeah that was ellis okay the the hardest part for me with that was 
figuring out how to deal with the difference in uh, the work process because Alan was extremely, you know, he wanted that communication. I wanted that communication. Yeah, right. And with Ellis, it was very much the opposite of that. It was, he wasn't very, um, it wasn't easy to communicate with him. Not a lot of email exchanges or no phone calls. I've never gotten more than a sentence email from that guy. Yeah, and for me, that was like a culture shock for me. Mm-hmm. That So like the first couple issues of Jones, I had a real hard time, you know, just finding my way in there because it was in, so in, different. In general, you try to communicate a lot with whoever you're working with, even if you're writing for somebody else. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. You know, he, I, I just don't think he, you get, you feel like your idea is coming across very well or like it's not, I don't know, it's part of the, the art process for yeah. you. So if you're not getting that, then he kind of feels stunted. Yeah. I feel like I, I'm one of those types of people, I need a rapport mm-hmm. with the, yeah. the people I'm working with, you know, so. I'm really interested in your, in your, uh, and your work you did with Seth Fisher too was that yeah. was that uh, prior to the Alan Moore work? Uh, no, that was um, Deering. Yeah, that's when Dan and I wrote uh, Snow with, for Seth, mm-hmm. and that was that was so much fun writing for him. Um, and what we ended up doing with that story was we just wrote the classic Batman story the way we wanted to tell it. Right. And let Seth do what he does, um, knowing he was going to do it. We didn't try to write, oh, let's write some trippy shit because it's Seth Fisher. Yeah. He'll yeah. figure that out for himself. You know <laughs> what I mean? And he actually really appreciated that because mm-hmm. he's like, he says, you, he goes, you guys have given me a classic Batman story. You didn't try to overly weird it up just because it's me drawing it, yeah. he said. You know, that and that really was fantastic. Work. What was that? I think that for me, that book really stands out for his work because it's oh, so... Thanks. Yeah, I mean, it's my favorite. It might be, yeah, it's it's definitely one of my favorite Batman stories. Oh, cool! I appreciate oh, cool. that. And yeah, and and he is, he was so good. And, yes. And he did rein it in. It seemed like he drew it. He wasn't trying to be the weird guy in the room. Right. It was weird when it needed to be weird. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It was definitely felt like him, even though it was a traditional right. Batman story. Yeah, yeah, and. That was, yeah, that was such a fun story to, to create for him. I was so eager when we knew we were going to do the Mr. Freeze origin, mm-hmm. you know, I was like, oh, Seth is just going to do a killer Mr. Freeze. And he did. It was so interesting looking. And especially the stuff when, uh, you know, um, Freeze's dead wife was, ends up being shattered. And then you find out she's just a hallucination. And, you know, all this stuff, you know, it was just really, really, really cool stuff. In some ways, I'm surprised DC lets tell that story because, you know, we basically said well, early Batman, you know, he almost dies, so he decides I can't handle this on my own and creates a group of agents like the Shadow would, mm-hmm. and it all goes horribly wrong. You know, they all die and get maimed. You know, <laughs> you know, and and at the end, he's like, oh, that that didn't work out so well, so I'll go train somebody from a young age. You know. Robin, so yeah, and, it makes it so <laughs> and that's less, not unfortunate. <laughs> yeah, but it makes it so much less weird than just the idea of of just flat out being like, oh, I'm just gonna find a young circus orphan. Right. Right. <laughs> it's, yeah, yeah. And I love the personality Seth brought to each one of those characters without overplaying it too. Yeah. I thought was it was he, really cool. Was he in Japan while you were working on that? Yes. Yeah. Did you have the same kind of collaborative approach with him that you wanted for yourself? 
uh, as much as possible. Um, with him being in Japan, it made it harder to talk on the phone and stuff. So well, there, but he was spending some time at his mom's in, in right, Southern we would, California. Right, and we, would, we hung out with each other. He shared booth space with us for a little bit during that time yeah. and stuff. What was the most interesting thing about that process is the first thing he started doing was a bunch of sketches. And it really was surprising because the sketches that he did of Batman were all heavily graphic they were hard black and white interesting and i'm like oh this is gonna be interesting what's what are the pages gonna look like you know and when he started drawing the the blacks weren't there it was what you would normally expect from seth fisher but it was interesting that those sketches were like that he was looking at a lot of alex toth and stuff with those sketches Mm -hmm. Uh, that's totally i wouldn't think of him with toth yeah yeah and then but when he drew the pages that all sort of sidestepped in a way it was really interesting did he color it himself or did he have uh, that was colored by dave lee? stewart wasn't it mm-hmm. for snow i think i think it was dave stewart i'll have to look or was it i know he worked with chris chuckery too but i don't think that story was oh man i'll have to look that up i can't remember now it's interesting because him collaborating with colorists, he always seemed to, they never seemed to go against his, his style, which is really amazing. Yeah. And well, especially always, if, if it was Dave, because I know Dave did color him on a couple issues of Doom Patrol, I, I believe. And I thought it was Lee. No, not, it wasn't Lee. Um, and what's great about Dave Stewart is that's what he does. He doesn't try to overcolor Mm-hmm. someone's style he brings to the table what the artist is looking for hmm. you're collaborating with him right now yeah. on Sandman and so do you have a pretty open communication of oh them? yes yeah they talk all the time yeah we uh, we Dave is very much interested in the way I think about things and I'm very much interested in the way he thinks about things so you know I'll provide like since I think design oriented a lot of times I have to think about color when I'm yeah. drawing um, and I'll convey all that in a set of notes or if there's something that I do and I have just a, like the vaguest notion in my head or I'm not sure about something we'll talk it out and I'm like what do you think Dave you know what are your ideas when you see that and you know like uh, we did this um, you know that little Nemo book that's coming out yeah the big one I was um, debating if I was going to do something for it did you do it? oh no no I saw Alred's on the here there and he was like you have to do one. Oh, you should do one yeah I did, yeah, I did one of those and uh, it came out really cool, and what was great about working with Dave on that is, you know, I have, of course, had all my ideas, and, right. and, and but there was a couple parts where I'm like, I'm not sure about this, so, you know, do, you know, what do you think? And then he ended up also adding some stuff that I, we didn't talk about at all that ended up being, that was a really great surprise, and he knew that he could do that and try it, and I'm not going to flip out on him because <laughs> I tried something we didn't talk about, you know, yeah. so. Well, something I noticed a lot in your illustration is that it seems like you're always trying to look for different ways to to present something that isn't just a normal grid panel. Mm-hmm. You, is there was there an early uh, beginning to to getting interest in that? Was there was there an influence that that, that sprung that on? Um, there's definitely influences, but at the time I was doing it, it was very much a subconscious thing, mm-hmm. and it was it was basically I I rediscovered the influence going back and looking at old stuff I, I like. And mm-hmm. then I would say, I'm like, oh my God, that's where this all 
is coming from is from right here. So like Jim Steranko, heavily influenced by Jim Starlin, heavily influenced by, you know, of course, Will Eisner. Um, yeah, it's about Eisner in the chapter two. Yes. In the beginning, the second issue of Sandman. Yes, yeah, that sort of thing. And, uh, but when I first started doing it in, in a little bit of that in Chase and in a lot in Promethea and stuff, it was very much a subconscious thing, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, as a kid, I was exposed. I was very fortunate living in the Bay Area as a kid because there's all kinds of comics in that area. So growing up, I was exposed to a huge variety of things and that all kind of just married into my brain, into the recesses of my brain. I'm sort of that way with just about everything I see. It sort of like just lives in there still. And when I, so when I started doing that stuff, in combination with the thinking about, you know, the ideas behind images and the, the subtext that images can have, um, that all became very evident and came out strongly with design too. Mm-hmm. You know, what the page is doing itself, how it moves, how it functions. What are some of the peripherals you can put in there that might either comment on the visual or the story itself? You know, that sort of stuff. So. One of the things that we've kind of talked a lot about with friends and just each other and cartoonists is the idea of like kind of embracing your influences, putting them in your work and then working through them. Yes, that's very much. um, I've had this conversation with quite a few people recently, you know, the last couple of years about um, style. I think I've come to I came to the conclusion when working on Promethea because Promethea was so much of an exploration of art itself mm-hmm. that nothing I could do is original. It's all derivative of something else. And that's that's when I really opened up the parameters for me to say, you know what? Fuck it. I can do whatever I want with these images. You know, I can switch from a different style here on one panel and go to a different style or multiple styles within one panel because those styles influence or impact the reader in subliminal ways, right? Right. And the fact that nothing I do is original anymore allowed me to embrace challenging myself and learning from dabbling with those different styles. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, So, you know, like, you know, a lot of times, you know, uh, people feel like I have a unique voice, but I really don't think it's that unique. I'm just sort of marrying or regurgitating things that I want to learn from and exploring those. Do you so, find that when you do that that it looks different than than you than you intend? Like like oh, yeah. you looking at an artist being like, I'm going to do you know this is going to be my Strenko panel, right. and then does it turn out like a Strenko panel, or does it? I never like see it as being exactly the right thing. It always okay. looks off to me, mm-hmm. you know. But I've, it's nice, every once in a while, you know, I'll hear from somebody and they'll say, oh, I see such and such in that, you know, mm-hmm. and they'll call it right. And so I'm like, oh, I must have did something right there, you know. Mm-hmm. But, and, uh, and, I, and I think, like, a lot of times when you're using your influences that you, you don't, he doesn't go in, like, saying, I, this is going to be my story and panel. It's yeah. like, I want this part of the story to feel like what I felt like reading a Storico right. story. Right, right. You know, that, I think that's kind of, yeah. it's a little bit left of 
just a straight influence. And right. so it's not straight pastiche, you know. Right. right. And, and yeah, and so I'm after a feeling that's, that, I think that's that why those images have. Right. It's right. not craft as much as Yeah, emotional. you want that feeling. Yeah. It's, a, yeah. it's an emotional thing and like the like with what you did with um uh, black glove and stuff like that where each character was its own style and it's like those characters were that style because that's what you felt like that artist is what you felt like that character would, would come be, from yeah and yeah. so that's why that worked yeah yeah um do you find yourself like when you're drawing at the table you'll have like some comics just open there too just no kinda... no i never it... ever do that um I don't even mean us. I don't mean like just copying. Oh no no I know yeah. I know what you mean. Yeah. No I I he let tries to he, he like absorbs things and then I let the influences reveal themselves in the work instinctually. Yeah. You know what feels right at the time, what my gut tells me to do, instead of trying to you know look at something because you know oh this has to be such and such or whatever. Um, I, I let it evolve right. into its own own and I thing. I think that's so. why like he doesn't. He doesn't do thumbnails because the he he feels confined. Like you, oh, I'm just trying to stick to that thing, and then um, like he doesn't use reference generally unless somebody wants a very specific gun or car or something like that. But even then, he'll look at it and draw it once or twice, and then throw the reference away. And then that from that point forward, it's from his memory, and so therefore it's still his original. drawing. It's not right. this referenced. Image. Thing, right, reference image. Because yeah, I'll even like even when I do that, like the first like, say if I have to draw you know a Mustang, a classic '65 right. Mustang or whatever, I'll look at it, and draw from the reference. But I'll purposefully draw in angles on the illustration that are not in the reference. So yeah. I imagine what it would look like from different angles, and that allows it to retain the idea that it's an illustration, it's a drawing, it's part of a story. And keeps it alive, I guess. What so. about with things like the the character anatomy? Do you do you have a mirror or anything in your studio with? No, no. I just uh, I have a very good memory for remembering how uh, muscle structure looks and flesh is shaped on a face from light sources and mm -hmm. things like that. Even even if it's a drawing that has no shadows on that. I can see them in my head and I can draw just the basic lines knowing where the shadows would fall. Okay. And that allows thing um so I've you know, it's sort of, it's not really a photographic memory, but it's a very acute memory where I can retain that stuff very well. So okay. and it's this it's the thing I don't set out to do. Like looking at you guys right now, it's happening right now in my brain. It's all processing and I can see how I would draw you and you and you. You know, <laughs> and it's just automatic. It's something I've always done ever since I was little, so. Hmm. Um, one of our friends, Frank Santoro, I don't know if you're familiar with this stuff. That name sounds familiar. He's been doing these things where uh, he'll take, like, a Tintin page and map out, like, the, the kind of the golden sections in it and, like, the direction of the reading and mm. just, like, kind of... Here's this line that goes through here, and you can see which way the eye's going, and kind of mm -hmm. where the action is. And I've heard that, um, and this may just be apocryphal, that in your own approach, um, you kind of map out how a page yes. looks. Yeah. Um, when I was doing thumbnails, the only thumbnails I would do would be, a lot of times, would only be the panel shapes themselves. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
so I could see how flow. And then I got to a point where I was, I'm not even really doing that. So it's, it's just, um, yeah, it's trying to understand how I think the eye would move. Sometimes I'm wrong or other times or people will see, they'll see it how I see it, but then the person standing next to him won't see it mm -hmm. that way. So it's like, uh, I've had a couple conversations with Neil about that where in terms of placement of uh, dialogue and stuff, because I try to control mm -hmm. the bloom placements. I have to think about that stuff. If I'm yeah, gonna do weird layouts, you have to think <laughs> about that stuff, right? And there would be times where, you know, Neil will think, oh, the, the flow doesn't, his eye doesn't move the same way. And I find that very fascinating. So it's all, it, you know, each person kind of will see it differently, I think when you're doing weird stuff. But I try to think about that as thoroughly as possible. Right. And on Sandman, you're working with the original letterer of the... Yeah. Yeah. Todd. Todd's always his letter. Yeah. Oh, okay. The, the one time recently where he wasn't was when I did the three issues of The Black Love with Grant. Right. Um, and they went, they went give me Todd. And at the, you know, the guy did an okay job, but there was a couple parts where, you know, I wanted to do something we had pages that were like literally like like a page is sitting on top of another page sort of effect and so all the panels were in a, an angle and so i want all the lettering to be the same angle and it just didn't happen right. it kept going like <laughs> i'm like no and so i'm like it's got to be todd <laughs> well just you and todd have again a lot of communication they yeah. talk all the time and and todd likes to try new things and you know I think pretty much everybody that you work with, you there's like a push back and forth. Yeah. Is Klein an illustrator as well? Um, he does draw a little bit, but I'm not. He doesn't really focus in on yeah. that. He also used to write too. He did yeah. a lot of logos. Right. Back in the eighties. Can yeah. you imagine with how visual the lettering is in your work? It must be really important that it not be ugly. Yeah. Yeah. It, you know, that's one thing that's so great about Todd. I mean, he's very much. He wants it to be extremely readable, mm -hmm. but he also wants it to be very creative too. Yeah. And he's a master at that. So the Is only it? thing that I've started doing um, ever since the end of Promethea, because at the end of Promethea, that's when we had the big digital shift to digital lettering started taking place. Right. And at that point, I, they started you know, doing like all the story titles would be digital, wouldn't be part of the art anymore. Mm -hmm. So I started doing all that stuff myself. Um, I, so all the title lettering is now done on the board by me because I just don't like how slapped on it started to feel. Yeah. And that's what I miss about, you know, hand lettering from Todd because he was so good at incorporating all that kind of stuff, you know. Would he do it right on the boards or on a vellum? He would do it on the boards originally. Um, all of Promethea was done on the boards unless if I was doing washes like that up there, then he'd have to have to do it as paste up. So, yeah, which I'm sure he just so appreciated. <laughs> but I miss the lettering being on the boards, honestly. Um, I think it helps me, it helps with composition. Cause like if you can lay it out, you know, roughly sketch it out or whatever, and you get it lettered, then you can see like, okay, the lettering's eating up such and such space or it's covered up something in the backgrounds you really wanted to show. Right. So if it's on, it allows you to come change all that stuff. And now with it being digital, you don't even get that opportunity. And sometimes lettering gets, 
can end up going over background details that right. you wish had now been placed differently. So you had the urge yeah. to, to, to get returned to uh, on the board in, in your work? I, every once in a while I think about it. Um, I'd have to ask Todd about that. I don't know if he... More money, probably. Yeah, oh yeah, he charges more for that, but the, he kind of, we just came back from visiting him in New Jersey, and, uh -huh. and he, was, he was saying that he was, had gotten so out of practice yeah. Uh, so I'm not sure if he'd want to return to it or not. Yeah, I don't so know. Nobody wants the hand lettering anymore. I think it's like I a should talk to him about the, yeah. Like there's a couple of folks that'll still do it. Yeah, still well, um, doing indie comics. Yeah. the guy who's sitting next to him, Workman. John Workman. John Workman will still do it. Yeah, he's kind of the last mainstream hand letter, isn't he? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Dustin Harvin will do it. He right. did uh, Brian Lee O'Malley's. Oh, yeah, but that's, that's indie stuff. The indie comics are like half hand lettered, I think. Right. He does. Well, he did um, Casanova. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, we did. We did that sort of on the the little Nemo thing I did, mm -hmm. where when I wrote the story, um, I ended up as I was drawing it. I decided, oh, you know what? I want to add thought balloons, and so right. I on the spot came up with characters thinking different things, and I hand lettered all yeah. that stuff. <laughs> And let Todd do his own, for the speaking parts, oh, did cool. his own lettering. So it's got this weird marriage of really nice Todd lettering and uh -huh. my bad, you know, hand lettering for the that thought sounds balloons. That so was with Windsor McKay, though. He's a <laughs> right, yeah. His lettering is awful, except yeah. for, the, you know, his t titles and stuff. Yeah. So, it, you know, it was kind of cool. It's weird looking, but it's interesting. But, you know, I should talk to Todd about doing mm -hmm. hand lettering on the... And we created a project. Uh, Jordan Crane, just really interesting work. He was doing a thing where he was drawing digitally, and then he had a font of his own handwriting he would put up, and then hand letter it on the on the uh, computer. Oh, on the on Cintiq. Um, yeah. Sort of creating uh, his own font. So much of a caveman. I'm like on the magic thing. <laughs> the magic box. The magic right. box. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the magic color box. Well, you kind of did that with your blonde. To, well, only I'll tell you why, but uh, he just did the Blondie album and he oh, cool. did, he had like a, a font that he got and uh, tweaked it for all of the credits, right? Mm -hmm. And so, so yeah, he tweaked all these letters for the credits and then so it would be really cool and electronic looking and, and, and. Like bad 80s electronic look. Yeah, right. but the bad thing is that there's been a million changes to the credits since <laughs> we did. So I'd have to build, like, you literally have to go in and extract what letters. needed to be changed and, like, extract letters and rebuild sentences. <laughs> it was, like, the stupidest thing. Because I didn't know how to create a font. <laughs> Instead of me going to Todd and saying, Todd, how do I create a font out of this? And so you know, he would tell the band, like, this is, this is the last one, right? And they tell, they swear up and down it was the last one, and it was never the last one. We Literally this week, still, we're still doing them. Uh, yeah, I did and, one two days before having to go off to the printer. To the printer. <laughs> and, yeah, I don't know how many, and it's just, and it's painstaking, because he literally created all these letters hand <laughs> by hand. <laughs> yeah, like some computer lettering dog. It's like, I'm going to mess with this guy. Yeah, well, even the, the label, the, uh, the production people at the label, you know, they're like... Next time, just create a font out of it so you can just type it out. And I'm like, 
And I know. Yeah. <laughs> but I don't know how to do that. So. I, I have no idea. I always hand, hand letter everything. Oh, do you? But, um, so with stuff like the Nemo work and, and things like doing an album cover, do you, do you draw those dramatically differently sizes than you could do your comic work? Um, yeah, well, I mean, the Little Nemo thing is it's like, so large. Yeah, it's... So it's printed at original art size, mm-hmm. which but for Little Nemo was like double. It's like a slightly bigger than a two-page spread, really. Yeah, and it's printed from that. And then um, uh, the Blondie stuff was done at all various sizes, and I just fit it into the design templates that needed. So like um, the, but usually what I try to do with album art because a lot of times they do vinyl now today, so. Right. Um, so I make sure it it is done scanned at a high resolution at album size, mm-hmm. like vinyl album size. Yeah. So like a thousand DPI at that size, and so yeah, it's super clean. Twelve right. by twelve. Yeah. Did you design it to be both vinyl and CD, or do yeah. you kind of do have to make variations between the two? Do they make yeah. CDs still? What's that? Do they still make CDs much? Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Yeah, oh, they're yeah. doing digipack for the. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I had control over the entire design aspect for it, um, like because well, I did the uh, album art for the sword last year too, and I had uh, design control over that too. So like every decision is all for me um, about it. And it's but because you're dealing with vinyl and CD, vinyl has different space coverage yeah. than the CD does. So there's always going to be art differences or reconfiguration of images right. to be used differently. It's so it's interesting to see. Like, drives collectors nuts. Yeah. Well, like mm-hmm. early CDs, like I listened to a lot of like old industrial stuff. <laughs> uh-huh. And so like you'll have like an old network records thing and you could tell all they did was just take the vinyl, shrink it. And so mm-hmm. you have yeah. this like tiny little writing. Yeah. Yeah. There's it. a little bit of that going on in there, but not it's, too bad. It's, it's, it can't be helped sometimes. Um, but yeah, I mean, with the Blondie thing, it's really going to be hard for collectors because, like, the European versions have different space ratios than the American ones. And so there's some different, different ima- art. Yeah, there's some different images in the booklet for the European release as well hmm. uh, because the booklet page count needs more pages. So I'm like, okay, well, this is what we'll do here. <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. Well, that, that brings up, uh, like, what do you listen to when you work? Is it all kinds of stuff? Both I'm a huge, yeah. yeah. So uh, your feed is basically your jukebox. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it goes all the way from, you know, old Van Halen to... That was this week, yeah. You know, then, yeah, I mean, we literally... Dumb Dumb Girls, you know? Right. Or I mean, <laughs> yeah. we, we listen to, like, um, our gardeners working in the yard, so <laughs> you're going to hear some noises. Um, uh, like, classical and old jazz, like... Mm-hmm. you know, Ella Fitzgerald and and stuff like that and to super modern and to rush. To, to <laughs> rush. To, yeah. yeah. He's been in a lot of yeah. like retro rock lately. Yeah. Um but we listen to everything, even yeah. some country like I like alt country and, and dark country and particularly old like the old folk music where a lot of the lyrics were really like about who murdered who and Written. that kind of stuff. I, yeah. We if, love if that kind of stuff. If it has a dark stuff. tinge, we'll definitely listen to <laughs> it. Um, but we listen to everything. Yeah. I mean, pe- people just send us stuff because they know that we might get into it. And, yeah, that's you know. cool. Yeah. And how does that 
Is that fans of your work they're sending you things? Mm-hmm. Sometimes. Yeah. yeah. How, was, how was your, do you have, um, do you think much about the readers? About Is there kind of a back and forth? Especially when you're doing such mainstream, such, such you know, you've got a very large audience, obviously. Um, yeah, I mean, I try, like, when people talk to me on Twitter, I try to do my best to respond to mm-hmm. everyone, even if it's a simple, you know, answer, you know. I think it's good, you know, we're living in the age of social media, and I think it's kind of good for the fan, the reader, and the creator, because you can have that interaction as people, right? Yeah. And, you know, I think there's... I think that's a really interesting thing that we're in, well, in now. And I think, you know, you grew up as a huge comics fan. You still are. Mm-hmm. I mean, he brings home stacks and stacks and stacks of comics, mm-hmm. and we get so much free stuff on top of that. And, you know, he collects, you know, Japanese comics, European comics, American comics, alternate, you know, underground comics, the whole thing, and so you know. Brandon Graham comics. Yes. And so, yeah, and so you have that ex- you have that experience of, of the collect of the aficionado of the of the enthusiast, and you know, you don't want to go up to someone that you really you really enjoyed their work and they're a giant dick. You yeah. Know, you know what yeah. I mean? And it's like, you know treat people like human beings. I mean, it's not hard. Right, and a lot of that is yeah. like remembering being on the other side of the table, like right. being in line to talk yeah. to. Yeah, like yeah. Even, even at, there's been times where at conventions, especially like San Diego, my God, where you can have, be having a bad day. Yeah. But you, you don't show that to the fans coming up to you because you're kind of destroying their experience. They won't, yeah. They're there to have a good time. And it might be their only time to actually interact with you, ever, right? Yeah. So you've got to be, you know, even if you're tired or not feel well or whatever, try to be as personal as you can. I think it's important. Sounds like a very sane way to do things. That's why we don't do a lot of Well, we're going to drink. Because we don't do so much. Do you find, like, you mentioned you don't do a lot of conventions, so it's like you need to kind of have a lot of personal time because, like, you don't yeah. live in a very heavy comics area. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you're kind of away from a lot of the hustle. And it's bustle. probably more me than you. I, I'm a little antisocial, but you know, and I get, it's like, I don't, I don't know what it is. I have, I, I'm, I'm kind of on both ends of the spectrum. Like when I'm there, I'm like there, you know, and like whenever we go to Vegas a lot, cause we have lots of friends there and, mm-hmm. and you know, Vegas is an overwhelming place, but then it's like, once I'm done, I'm, I just pull away and I don't want to see anybody for a couple of months, yep. you know? Um, so it's kind of like that. We kind of like get in the middle of it and get out. I mean, well, he, he's a little bit better about it than I am, but. Well, I, well, as far as like just hanging around here in terms of comic stuff, I try to get out once a week down to the comic shop and, um, you know, I had some friends that always are down there and stuff and then end up going to coffee afterward and. Sometimes we talk about comics, and sometimes we talk about whatever, you know. Um, so I, I like to get out about once a week, try to uh, see something else other than what's in front of me at the table. Mm-hmm. You know. But I mean, you know, we we did a year of just touring the United States and Europe, just doing con after con. And it's like you get in a rhythm of it, and so you kind of get past it, your stuff a little bit. But I wouldn't be able to work doing that. Not very much. <laughs> I can't work on the road. So, the, I, yeah. I'm not going to do a page 
like, and and I assume you do. What do you do? Six issues a year, maybe more. Maybe maybe about six issues. Depends. It's, it depends. depends on how detailed. Sam the work might is. be a little less than that. Right. Yeah, right. it's usually two to three pages a week, but it depends on how detailed right. it is. Because for readers, that probably seems like you're just sitting on your porch sipping sweet tea. But for right, oh yeah, artists, it's like I'm yeah. like, six issues a year in that style. Are you crazy? Yeah. Like, do you just not sleep? Do you? <laughs> well, I mean, he 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 works an eighteen to fourteen hour day, five days a week. Wow. Um, and still only does two to three pages a week. And and some and you know if it's a super heavy page, I mean it might not even be that. It might be you know, like some of those double page spreads can take six or seven, eight days. Sometimes. Yeah. Good yeah. So yeah. You kind of like say, okay, it's weekend time. Oh yeah, like weekend, we, yeah we, he was like kind of working whenever and he was getting so burnt out. Uh, the last half of Batwoman. He that fat broke me. He about broke him. We, we had some traveling to do, so he just decided to work every day. And it was like from the end, like the middle of May to the middle of February, even through Christmas and Thanksgiving. Worked every single day, eight to eight to fourteen hours a day. To get that last, my the last arc that I drew on Batwoman. And it like. Done. And we still needed a you know, a fill-in chapter. <laughs> right. Right. And and he like, just almost collapsed at the end of that because it was just so. Great. I was so exhausted, and I had to. And at that point, by the time I was done, Sandman was now on the wire, mm -hmm. and. Well, you had the blondie thing to do. And I had the blondie thing to do. That was done before Sam and I started. Yeah, and um, so, it, you know, I tried to take a break, but there was so much other little right. stuff to do, and then you know, the Sam and schedule comes along, and it's basically starting late, too. Yeah, and so, you know, but even with that, I, you know, I had to kind of say, you know, no, I can't work on weekends. I just... It, you will not like the end result if I do this any further. So you're doing monthly comics? Uh, something that's really important to you then? Because I imagine it was... I think, I think it was more that you were afraid of not being out there. Oh, with, Bat, with Batwoman? Yeah. Batwoman, I mean, I've... Well, I, Batwoman was, that that was a requirement. Well, that particular arc, because, you know, where we were going to end with that, with the big, um, you know proposal scene and all that stuff. I, mm -hmm. I was an extremely personally important storyline to me. Right. And um, so I was like, no, I have to, I have, I can't let that be drawn by somebody else. So like even the, you know, the insert chapter we did, we wrote it in a way where it, it's a diversion for that chapter, you know, and we, and even at that, we had it t sort of take place in a way between this moment where Batwoman's dropping down from the sky to be the big hero, right. and it's it's all Maggie's in her mind and her remembering that day mm -hmm. while she's wa watching Batwoman drop down from the sky. You know, so, so it was even that section ha was sort of separate um, because I just felt like I I really needed to do all that myself for that for that storyline. It's too important, and so. But at the same time, it was an interesting learning experience, too, because it taught me, like, there is no way in hell I can do a monthly series unless if I have an insane amount of lead time, you know. And Batwoman, we started off Batwoman with a decent amount of lead time. You know, we even had that second arc that was 
written at the same time as writing the first arc mm -hmm. that could be worked on simultaneously and he still ran out of time because that monthly schedule is impossible. Right. Was yeah. there, we talked to Brubaker yesterday and I didn't realize like, that's how you got to do it in mainstream comics. It's like you're not writing one storyline at a time. You're right. writing your next two or three storylines yeah. and like you're trying to keep these things separate in your yeah. head because you got to get all the artists yeah. going. Exactly. So you're working, do you, so that one, you started with, with the Rucka, right? Uh-huh. And then, uh, and then, were you, were you contributing to the writing at all at that point? No, but I, we talked a lot about the visual pacing, mm -hmm. or, or Greg had an idea for a scene, and we would talk about it on the phone, you know, and I'm like, oh, this is how we should handle this scene. Like, what is a great example in, in issue one of our detective run, the whole issue, there's really no action up until this one bit where she drops down in this this church. Right. And basically, she kicks the hell out of these guys in only two pages. That's all we get. And so it's like he, you know, he called me up. It's like, how do we, what do we do to make that feel like big enough that people feel like they get enough meat for action? It's an action book, right? And so that's how we, you know, we would talk about it, and that's how we got the idea for that. And so, um, so a lot of it was communication ahead of time with him. Um, and what was good about that, I was able to get inside his head a little bit about the character. Right. I think that helped me a lot when I took over, as being so, knew, knowing sort of how Greg thought about a lot of stuff helped a lot when I took over, even though we kind of, dovetailed it in a slightly different direction, but I think it was important to do that anyway. Mm -hmm. You don't want to keep telling the same story over and over anyway. Right, so. yeah. So was taking over something that you had planned on, or was it just kind of dumped No, it was sort of a weird thing, because, like, Greg was having a lot of issues with DC, unfortunately, and um, it got to a point where he wasn't sure what he was going to do. And so, well waiting to see what he was going to decide, Hayden and I decided we always thought it would be kind of a cool thing to do a World's Finest storyline, mm -hmm. but do it with that one, you know, do it with that one and Wonder Woman instead. And so we pitched that idea as a miniseries to DC, and they seemed to like it and were interested in doing it. Um, and then Greg ultimately decided he was going to leave, and then DC approached us and said, hey, why don't you just take over? Right. Um, and even at that point, I, you know, I was, I was very nervous about doing it until I spoke to Greg first. I wasn't going to do it unless if he was okay with it because it was an important project for him yeah, too. Yeah, too yeah. You know, ultimately he gave me his blessing to do it and we ended up, you know, rolling the world's finest storyline into the bigger plot of Batwoman and stretched it out and built it in a subplot until you get to that, that point in the, in the series. Um, that's how that all sort of happened. Mm -hmm. So it was, it, yeah, it was sort of like this weird thing that just sort of got presented to me, you know? And at the time that that happened, um, I had been wanting to do writing of my own for a while because I had wrote a little bit with Dan Johnson like on Snow and Chase and stuff like that. But I kept getting a lot of resistance to, to writing, to being a writer. I think people were so invested in what I do visually, they didn't want, they were not interested in what my ideas were for stories. And so I had a lot of resistance to that. And so when 
we approached them with the world's finest thing. I think they liked the idea, but I was also being talked to by Marvel at that point. Mm. They wanted me to come over there. And what made me decide not to go to Marvel was the fact that DC said, all right, we're going to give you this shot at writing. Okay. Um, so creatively, I had to take it. Yeah, so I had a couple, I had a couple more questions I was thinking okay. about. Um, one, one thing I was thinking about with, with both Batwoman and Sandwoman. And, uh, Sand Sand there is Sand a Sandwoman. <laughs> In that issue. No, <laughs> is that just what they're calling death now? <laughs> well, I was, I was thinking, it's, a lot of this is very, I mean, obviously, it's it's very it's very uh, mainstream comics, but it's it's very much touching in counterculture and queer culture. Right. And I was wondering if that's something that you think about in your work, and and, and something about how their relationship with the audience. Like, it's got to be amazing for you know gay and lesbian readers to to have a Batwoman. That yeah. Um, when I took on Batwoman, even before I started writing it, when I took it on with Greg. Uh, I think everyone involved really had a good understanding of the responsibility involved in doing it. Because, you know, if we weren't going to be able to do it in the most respectful manner possible, then there's no point, you know. And, and there was a lot of worry about it being just a salacious, you know, gimmicky sort of thing. And, right. you know, especially the way it got announced originally. It was like, oh, we're going to do this Batwoman character, and guess what? She's gay, right? That was sort of how they introduced the character, and everyone mm -hmm. was like, huh? And so we had to kind of fight that uphill battle to prove that, no, this is not going to be just a gimmick. This is yeah. for real. We're going to treat this character as if she's a real person and give her as many different nuances as possible. And when Hayden and I took over uh, to do the regular series, that was, you know, we kept that going full force. And it ended up, I wasn't realizing how much of an impact it was having on the audience until the time of Grant Morrison, the Grant Morrison con, um, I was talking, they had this thing where you do a signing, but you were, uh, the creators were sitting at like a little round cocktail table and mm -hmm. they would usher people in and they sit down and talk to you for a few minutes and get their book signed. Well, this, uh, this guy and this girl were up there, uh, they were next in line and they were arguing with each other and you know, I couldn't figure out what they were arguing about. And I'm like, well, you just sit down, just sit down. And um, they sit down, they throw down a copy of Promethea Volume 1. And, and she's like, I don't, the reason why they were arguing is like, she's I don't know if I want to have you sign this book because I haven't read this book. And her friend is like, no, she's getting that book signed and stuff. <laughs> and, then, and I'm like, it's okay. She doesn't have to have it signed. She doesn't want, you know, it's, it's up to her. And so I started talking to her about stuff that she liked to read. And so I'm like, well, I think you'll like it, you know. And, but then it came time for them to go because everyone's being ushered and timed out, right? And the, the, that was a very interesting situation for me and very emotional because she starts to stand up. And then she's like, no, wait, wait. You know, I haven't made myself clear about what you've done with Batwoman, what it means to me. And, and, and so she sat back down and she started talking some more and she's like, I just, I don't think I've made it clear to you what this means to me as a gay woman. And then she just broke down and started crying. Hmm. And when that happened, I was like, holy cow, that was like so powerful. 
And at the time, that's when, you know, we're trying to sort out the whole proposal scene for, for the issue. And at that, you know, when she spoke to me that way, I'm like, there's no way I can not, you know, backtrack on anything we've done. Right. We have to move forward. Um, that was, that's when I first realized how deeply impacted that work was having, you know, having. Right. And on the same sense, have you had any, uh, any criticism from gay readers? Not that I really recall. I mean, there were some that were a bit disturbed by the scene in issue four when we're counterbalancing the love scene with the the brutality of what happens to Betty Kane. Mm -hmm. um, but that's that was the point. It needed to be disturbing. We needed to show the two different sides of, you know, what can happen to a human being. Um, and, and there's, like, occasionally the general criticism of straight males writing gay women yeah. and, right. but you would get that just men writing women in general mm -hmm. right. um, but I, I don't feel like I, I feel like you've done things respectfully and with I mean you know it's, it's, a, it's a tough balance because what like you shouldn't write it right and it's like you know, it's women like, write and men so all should the I time only write I mean like Jaime writes uh -huh. you know queer women yeah um and like it's very important for for queer women to write, be have the capacity to write for themselves. Yeah, she yeah. should have yeah. an ally, absolutely. But at the same point, we, we need to writers need to be writing different types of characters. Right. right. If 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 you're going to be a real writer, you're going to be writing about people that are not yourself. Yeah. There's a little bit of you in everything when you're a writer, right. sure. But how how can you? I mean, to me, writing is really. If you're writing characters properly and writing them as if they are real people, you're, it's a way of sort of learning about the world around you, right? And the differences between people. And so I think it's super important that, you know, characters of all types are written by writers of all types. Right. You know? It's and, also going to be difficult because you're doing this at a time that the DC especially was getting a lot of criticism for how they were handling the female characters. and. Yeah, yeah, and uh, so in some ways I think we were a nice shining beacon in that bit of negativity that DC was getting about right. a lot of the female cre uh, characters and stuff. And um, so, you know, I mean, there's a, every piece of work is always going to have its detractors, certainly. Mm -hmm. But for the most part, on that particular subject with Batwoman uh, being a gay character written by two straight men, we had very, very little criticism because I think they saw right away that we were writing her as if she's a real person, right. you know, and tr treated every aspect with, you know, respect. Well, I'm wondering if you guys... And not afraid to like talk a, about the, the issues. That yeah. was the thing. I'm wondering if you guys kind of felt like an, an island of reasonable and a sea of crazy, or if that's just me being snarky with a DC. <laughs> no. <laughs> that's, that's a good assessment. <laughs> and, you know, you had so much control over that book that, you know... That's one thing I can really say that was great about DC is, you know, whenever, like, when we, when we knew we were going to write that first love scene and stuff, I thought for sure DC was going to flip out, mm -hmm. you know. But they were pretty great about it. You know, they're like, you know, we trust you. You're going to do, you know, do what you do. And when it, they, there was no sign of nervousness from them at all. And then when I turned the artwork in, that's when, I, that's when they revealed that there was nervousness because they were like... <laughs> They're like, oh, you handled this so tastefully. This is, this is great, you know. 
So they obviously right. had been thinking about it. They just didn't voice it. They were trusting me that I would actually hopefully come through like a you know right. a decent person. But I, but I wonder because it's funny because I'm just I'm always having to to realize when I'm interviewing people that to rein in my own. <laughs> but but it's but I, I imagine the same people kind of you know getting a. I don't know, like a Judd Winnick, Catwoman comic, and just being like, oh, didn't handle that tastefully. Oh, well, next book. <laughs> <laughs> well, the funny, the funniest thing we heard about the issue four was well after it came out. We, mm-hmm. rent, we were talking to this guy who worked on, on the L.A. side of D.C., and that when the issue came out, that there were higher-ups over at Warner that when they saw it, they're like, we published this? Uh-huh. They were a little... <laughs> unnerved by it because they didn't I guess didn't know until after the fact and so that was kind of interesting but there was no there was no there was no backlash there was no backlash I mean if anything people you know particularly in the gay community because the way we handled that they're like mm-hmm. you know they thought it was fantastic one you know I remember hearing from one female reader gay reader that when she she read it as soon as she brought it out to her car and she, yeah, no one knew we were going to do that. Mm. You know, have a, a gay love scene, and when she read it, she said, "Again, it was someone else that broke down in tears." In tears, because right. she's like, "I never thought I could see something like that." Yeah, that's my sister, but also super depressing. It's like it is depressing. It is, Absolutely. but you know, it's like the old mainstream TV, like NBC, can't have two men kissing. Right. On a TV show, and then Saturday Night Live, the dudes are all kissing yeah. each other. Yeah. Like, and, well, that's the kind of our country as a whole is pretty schizophrenic about stuff. Our country as a whole. Yes. <laughs> it is a whole. Um, I you know, presumptuously say you're at the point in your career where really you have a pretty strong pick and choose of what you want to do. I mean, the Sandman gig is pretty as high profile as it gets yeah. in yeah. mainstream comics right now. Um, what do you want to do for yourself? Like... Um, well, when Sandman's done, I'm going to be moving into the creator-owned area. Um, and my ultimate goal has always been to tell my own stories, mm-hmm. not corporate-owned stories, stories that I can claim as mine. And surprisingly, I have found that a very difficult journey to, to acquire or to, to reach that point. And part of it is because, you know, the economics of comics are so weird and, you know, I'm not the fastest artist out there, so to find way to find a way where I could do that and be able to make a living is important. I can't, you know, I'm at an age, you know, where I can't just go off and oh, if it loses money, who cares, I, you know? But you know, I'm at a point where all that stuff is extremely important. Um, but I think you know, I've been very fortunate in the mainstream jobs I've had, you know. Prometheus, Sandman, you know, stuff with Grant, Desolation, all this stuff is all sort of, I feel like, been building up to being able to do it and people, enough people being willing to mm-hmm. put their eyes on it that it can do well. Yeah, well I mean, enough to at least pay for itself. And when I, I say pay for itself, that means. You could manage to pull off a creator on book but didn't sell. Uh, weirder shit happens. We start, we start putting bets down. <laughs> Weird, weirder shit happens. I'll consider it a success if it pays for itself, and that, and when I mean pay for itself, that that's paying if everyone involved in the project is making a paycheck. Yeah. So that they can actually rely on. So. Okay. Something else, and this is this is again me being back to, to my own agenda. <laughs> that's fine. Yeah. No. But like, right, so this is this Sandman is arguably something that's like. For readers of Sandman, the series being drawn by you is like 
you know, one of the high points, it's kind of like, um, kind of the last great vertigo, vertigo book maybe of, of, you know, you doing this fantastic artwork on it and, and, you know, this writer that is, is abandoned comics for, for novels and TV, returning to it for the thing. And, and it really hit me just like opening up the issues with gigantic with ads, like the page one is facing an ad for combos. And I was just, I was just wondering if that is really hard to work in that situation where you're thinking about the pacing, you're thinking about, you know, how to bring the reader into this other world and, and really just believe this stuff. And then, you know, there's like, I don't know, Hulk pajama ads or whatever. <laughs> yeah, if it was up to me, there would be no ads. Is that something that, that no. you discuss with the editors? Or is that just something that's kind of a line in the sand for DC? Occasionally, you can get them thrown in the back. Yeah, well, like that, I think that issue, the ads are in the back, right? The issue one wasn't. I think, it's I think both of them have ads. I mean, for the issue two, it's just the, the first page is combos. Right, yeah. but other than that... And I mean, combos are delicious. I mean. <laughs> <laughs> he wants some for free. Send it to him. <laughs> but, um, combos, ads, and profit. Uh, yeah, for me, it's like... I, I don't care what the comic is. I, I would prefer for there not to be ads unless if they're ads for other comics. Right. You know, uh, this is how I am. I'm kind of... Yeah, and in the back. You know, like with issue one, they had to... The, they had to put the ads where they did in issue one scattered throughout the story because we did that fold-out thing. Mm -hmm. And the way the story was written with that fold-out being in the back of the... Almost at the end of the issue, right. there was no other way that they could have done the ads. But imagine you're doing so. such beautiful work that people would have been really happy to see. It's like this prestige format with, you know, the process in the backer or something else. Because it is, it is, it's like a nicely printed book and, and more expensive than an average comic book. Yeah, that's why they're I doing those special editions. Yeah, I don't know if you saw those. Edition, and then okay. they figure people are probably going to get it traded. Yeah, so. it feels yeah. like they're almost punishing readers. That are not right. to give them to wait for the train. <laughs> it's, it's like, well, you don't want to wait for content, so you put up with the ads. Okay. Yeah. Right. You, you're going to get your content spoiled by somebody on the internet right. if you wait for the trade. And, and unfortunately, <laughs> the just put up with the combo that. Well, well, and unfortunately, I mean, this is the reality of the the economics of comics that right. we in today's industry that we have to deal with is. We don't sell the numbers that we used to. Right. Yeah. So the, the publishers, even on something like Sandman, that you know is going to break in a certain dollar amount for the yeah. company, still feels like they are going to get reward by selling that ad space. They need that revenue. Right. But well, Neil's on the record pretty heavily that there's a certain paycheck if he's going to do comics again yeah. because of the amount of yeah, work that goes into yeah. it. But also a ton of the ads in here are house ads. Which is yeah, which is good. And, then, and, you know, and they, they did that nice thing at the end where they give you a preview of uh, Dead Boy Detectives for, for uh, issue two as well. Is it, is it difficult ever if you had a put out a book and it has a big... I'm, I'm horrible at this stuff. Like, I won't let them run ads that I don't approve of the books. <laughs> I yeah. wish... Oh, God, I wish I had that kind of control. <laughs> that would be amazing. But you, be amazing. the advertising that was with Chase was a big... Oh, when Chase bone, came out. ...bone of contention was... Um, you know, well, the series isn't doing well. Well, you put the ads in Scooby-Doo. Right. When and they advertised Chase, it was advertised in Scooby-Doo comics. Not Batman. No. Not Batman. Batman. It's just the big no, Nothing. No, yeah, it was scooby -Doo. I mean, she had her push by launching as a guest character in Batman, but right. it wasn't the same as, like, yeah. here's yeah. the new series in all of their books, you know. It was mainly it was things like Scooby-Doo. I'm like, oh, right. okay. Because I was just thinking how funny it would be if the combos, ads, and... 
and the Dracula ad were all illustrated by you as well. That would be amazing. Like, I would do that. Combo's ad. <laughs> I would do that. Right, that would be cool. <laughs> Why not, right? Yeah. Well, isn't, doesn't the image, image comics, they allow you to prove the ads? I, maybe. Yeah. In English comics, they've created their own work so you can actually have no ads, which has been... I'm an alligator I'm a mama papa coming for you I'm a space invader I'll be a rock and rolling bitch for you Keep your mouth shut Just walk like a big monkey bird And I'm busting up a brain for the world
you enjoy writing for other people as much as you oh, enjoy yeah. writing for yourself? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I, I would, you know, I'm always mean? talking to other people, who, you know, if they want to work with me, you know. Yeah, just for being on shelf, shelves, you think that would be a fantastic way to... Yeah, yeah, I'm trying to get get that sort of thing going, but it's, you know, what makes it that part difficult to to accomplish is the amount of time it takes me to draw stuff. So that Mm -hmm. gets in the way of finding proper time to put the right amount of attention to the writing part too. We keep butting up against this wall of they want you to draw. Right. If they see my name. Talk to him about the the project, but then if they realize he's not drawing it, then they kind of. It's a cool weird dichotomy right now where, yeah. like, you're either an artist or a writer. Right. You know, it's especially, like, images very writer-heavy. Uh, that's kind of their thing right mm-hmm. now. They got Matt Fraction. They got Kelly Sue. You know, they're... Yeah. You know, Matt's writing for Howard Chaikin. Right. <laughs> you know, right, it's, right. and that's the kind of dynamic there. And, it, and it's interesting because, like, I don't know. It's... I don't even know what I'm verbalizing right now, but it's this odd, like, back and forth. Yeah, it's weird to be seen as a whole creator sometimes. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and it's funny how the way that readers have been trained, you can almost be thought of as a better writer if they see your name on something you didn't draw. Mm-hmm. Right. I was not taken seriously as a writer at all until I stopped drawing it, and then I'm suddenly, and I'm not sure a lot of people don't still, but, you know, right. suddenly it's, it's, it's really, it's bizarre, and I think a lot of that is... Well, you're I mean, treated differently for profit than you are for Warheads. And I understand that's, there's not dumb jokes on every page in profit, obviously, so it's, it yeah. is a different... Different animal. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, just I think, I think a lot of what we're reeling with is kind of a post-90s image kind of mm-hmm. reaction to, to just artists doing kind of... Right. Um, doing really kind of teenage boy work. And then, you know, it's like kind of the Joss Whedon, Matt Fraction, whatever, right. writer has become the, the face of comics now. Right, and I think... It's to balance it more. Yeah, there definitely needs to be more balance. And, I, you know, unfortunately, I think there's been a lot of compartmentalization from... Mm-hmm. Companies. Com- not just the companies, but the readership. But mm-hmm. the readership has sort of been trained by the publishers to right. think that way, right? And I think that's truly unfair because when, when, you, when you look at what an artist brings to the table in terms of crafting a comic, mm-hmm. an artist is very much a storyteller. So I, I, you know, I ended up doing an interview recently where you know, they were asking me about that. They'd say, you refer to yourself as a storyteller. Can mm-hmm. you explain that? And, and you know, con- you know if, if you're a comics artist and you can tell a story visually, you are a writer. Right. You are a storyteller. You, so it's more than that, then you have no business in comics anyway. So. Right. So being you know being an artist, being a comics artist, is more than just being a, a, a good illustrator. Mm-hmm. You know, you have to have st- storytelling chops, and you know, I think a, a lot of times people forget that. You know, a lot of, also a lot of times people don't realize how much the artist brings to the table in mm-hmm. terms of what how the story impacts them little nuances that could be mm-hmm. there that you know might not even be in the script possibly you know well yeah that can, happens a lot it can make you feel completely differently about a story depending on the art that's why you choose different art styles in the yeah, first place yeah yeah and i it, this that's yeah it's really you know it saddens me a lot that people still you know will look at comics that way and artists that artists can't be trusted to be writers you know and and the little bit that I've done where I've written for other people, people there's been a, a, a group of the audience that has accepted it, but there's also another group that sort of 
rebels against it. You know, like, oh, he's a better artist than he's a writer, you know? And so once you get known for a certain, it's like, say Matt Fraction or somebody like that said, okay, I'm not going to write, I'm going to draw. And they became an artist. How many, uh, how much of the readership would be accepting of that? Right. They would have these colored glasses on when they would look at his art. They'd be like, and he could be the most fantastic artist you've ever seen. And they would still probably criticize it versus what they like about his writing. Right. Yeah. And too, that's right? what's happening with, you know, artists that wanted to write. You know? but it's funny because it always seems to go one way. Yeah. And it's funny because, the... like, you can only draw one book, but writers right. can write, mm-hmm. you know, many. Right, <laughs> right. And that's also one of the, I totally understand, that's one of the appeals of, of companies backing writers as, as strongly as they do is they can sell you know, five books a month by a writer as opposed to right. an illustrator. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, you know, for a part of our apprehension of, you know, making this leap and we're trying to make the, the circumstances as optimum as possible mm-hmm. uh, for him to make the jump is, you know, we've been making good money the last five, six years. But before that, I mean, we were really poor, and mm-hmm. for a couple, well, one year in particular, we were nearly homeless, mm-hmm. um, and we had like one bologna sandwich a day, and part of that was even donated from other people, and basically $20 in the wrong direction, and we'd be living in my car, um, and we lived through that for about a year, and yeah. then we finally got out of that, and... We still, it was just paycheck to paycheck and anything anything could go wrong and we were going to be in debt up to our eyeballs and, um, you know, we lived like that for a really long time and so I think that's part of the fear. Apprehension. Yeah, yeah. of, of making the leap because, you, you know, DC, good, you know, there's been great things with DC and there's some not so great things right. with DC, but it's been a lifeline for us in yeah. a lot of ways and they yeah. have treated us consistently, you know, well, and that they, you know, have given him so much work and... Oh, some good, really great opportunities. And great I mean, opportunities that we never would have had any other, all, any other way. Yeah, all these marquee projects that I'm known for are right. from the publishers. your work ethic, too, the kind of uh, fear of... of uh, yeah. yeah. It's just Definitely. like when you think of, like, the yeah. Kirby thing of just, like... Because oh, a guy that came right out of depression, and, like, that's why he drew and drew and drew and right. drew. Yeah. It wasn't... Yeah. Yeah, People he's a very like blue collar when but it comes you, to, to drawing. I mean, it's it's he's yeah. got at least a forty hour work week. Yeah. Every week, and uh, you know, occasionally we. I mean, we didn't take a vacation like the first thirteen years we were married. <laughs> you know, and even when he takes a vacation, it's just like okay, it's you know, usually tied. I'm coming back to work, and well, and, or it's tied to doing a signing or something like right, that. You know, yeah, because, so it's yeah. usually a working vacation, but um, yeah, I mean. It, work is always on your mind. It's hard to get him to shut work off. I mean, even, you know, when he's not working, he's thinking about a story or he's, you know, because he's reading comics or whatever. He's like, oh, you know, this would be a really great idea for this. And, you know, it's hard for him to put it down. And, you know, I'm trying to get him to be better about that because he's just will work himself to death otherwise. <laughs> yeah. That's why weekend's off. <laughs> and here we are on a Saturday afternoon. No, it's, it's, you know, yeah, but I mean... Yeah, it's, it's, it's special occasions. <laughs> <laughs> um, are, do you find that there's certain things that help to really kind of separate yourself and have that time of disconnect to kind of regroup? Um, for me, it's a lot, you know, reading. Even if I'm reading comics, it's still a bit of a... That's something I really enjoy, you know. 
Well, uh, the one for, thing I do that for myself. Lately, so. that I, you know, it's his mandate on Wednesday with his. We have a friend yeah. that he. They go to the corner shop and they go have coffee, and it's their mandate. Mm. And, and, yeah. I think that mandate in a different way. <laughs> right. right. Yeah, so I'm making, you know, like, he'll, like, oh, I have too much work to do, and I can't go. I'm just going to tell John I can't go. And I'm like, no, you go to your mandate. And, and uh, so, That's you know. Yes. And, and, you know, they talk about a lot of comics and stuff like that, but John can talk about lots of other things. So, you know, he gets his mind off of it. and or you know you can blow off steam a little bit and mm-hmm. but like a lot of times when it's you get to hear all the stories when i'm mad about something <laughs> <laughs> and um he well and when he's done working at the end of the day he's usually pretty burnt so it's usually you know watching tv a lot we were big tv people too much tv but um it does let him kind of check out a little, not check out, I mean, we watch good TV, but, you know, <laughs> but, you know, focus on You don't on have to justify, else. I watch reality TV. No, like I can't watch any of that stuff, but the, you know, we watch good TV, but Sorry. it's just, uh, you know, it gets his mind on something else generally, hmm. but he's still, you know, he's just like a sponge most of the time, because he's, you know, we'll watch a movie or something like that, and then I can see it influenced in the art. You know, a few days later, you know, just, just like that. So it's kind of hard for him to turn it off. Yeah. It's a good thing you're not watching reality TV then. Yeah, oh, I can't stand that stuff. But, yeah. you know, we have Yosemite in the backyard, and so, you know, when he's really had a stressful week, we try to go up there and just drive around. And, yeah. And, you know. What's it like out there? Oh, it's beautiful. And he, he grew up in the city, and I grew up around here, so uh, I always like to, you know, taking him up there to see nature and be in nature. Um, <laughs> and uh, it's just, you know, there's all these waterfalls and, and uh, rivers and mm-hmm. bugs, which he hates. But, um, <laughs> you know, I like drawing insects. I just don't like ugh, insects. He's good with public. But, uh, <laughs> you know, and just, just seeing, you know, the different animals and stuff like that. And he can kind of relax because it's so not comic related not you know media related well the i the hardest thing i you know i have dealing with the work stuff is stress i get stressed when i'm working a lot of times because i'm really fretting over that image and he has a tremor and i have a, a physical tremor too that i deal with every day um that's part of the reason why you know it does take a while to get the work done sometimes because of that tremor you there's, know, there's days he can't work because the term is so bad. It's a hereditary on his mom's side. And yeah. Uh, there are uh, members on your mom's side, there's some, they just can't even hold a cup. I mean, they have to hold it with both hands. And Is that something that's always been around? Um, I haven't, I didn't realize I was having it like uh, my mom until I started working on Seven Soldiers issue two. Mm-hmm. Or, not, well, the bookend, the last bookend. And... I was doing this one part where I was combining like this etching style drawing with actual paint. Mm-hmm. And when I was doing the etching style stuff, I ended up getting like really bad hand cramps and ended up get, having carpal tunnel. Right. And I didn't, that, but what, because I got the carpal tunnels, how I discovered that I was getting that tremor because I got the carpal tunnel because I was trying to con- con- compensate for the shakiness. Mm-hmm. So doing, and so that really tightening, showed, tightening, tightening. right. Yeah. And that really showed when you're doing that etching sort of 
highly complex <coughs> stuff, you know, when you've got a tremor, you you know, that's hard to do. And I didn't, that's when I first realized, oh, this is starting, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and luckily, you know. I had to have acupuncture for about a year. Yeah. And by the time your mom was, she was younger than you when we met. And she was already so, they, they call her the shaky lady where she works because she would just almost vibrate. And she was really bad. So the fact that you're not that bad, I think, honestly, I attribute it to the drawing. Um, yeah, I think something about that is, has kept see. it at bay. But at the same time, it's like this weird, vicious cycle because I'll get stressed out because I know I'm dealing with the tremor, mm -hmm. and so it raises my stress level when yeah. I'm working. But then if my the stress being stressed will make it worse, so it's trying to psychologically always trying to figure out ways to deal with that mentally and try to stay calm. Right. Because you know, especially there's days where it's just bad. I'm just shaking bad. There's just nothing I can do about yeah, it. Yeah, and he, he'll get and a migraine. And I can't not work. I have to do the work. Right. So I find ways to work through it. But So the stress is the biggest thing. You, you grit your teeth and throw things through it. It'll Sometimes. You're, you're not really working through it. You sound so zen there when it's not <laughs> what happens. Yeah, it does sound like... You get breathing exercise, you're just yeah. smashing right, rocks. Right, bullshit. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it's difficult because it's one of those things that's... Your your identity is being played with, mm -hmm. right? Your livelihood. Yeah. My livelihood, yeah, yeah, yeah. And what I you know enjoy doing. Mm -hmm. That's and that does creep in there because I'm one of those types of people, and it's like because I know what's happened with members of my family, and I'm like, if I get that bad, it's over. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's it. There's no way around that. And so, like you know, this kind of comes back to being known as a writer too. Kind right. of plays an important role for me, mm -hmm. and why it's so valued to me is because, you know, if for some reason I can't draw, I could at least write. Right, because they have that creative outlet as well. Yeah, and so, you know, I think that's why it's been. I get really aggravated when facing that sort of. Uh, political uphill battle about mm -hmm. being an artist wanting to be a writer sort of thing, so. I noticed you didn't have a Cintiq, or didn't see a Cintiq. No. Uh -huh. And so that's just not... No, yeah, it won't, that, you, any problems you have drawing physically on a piece of paper, yeah. you're gonna have the same thing on the computer. The only thing that's good about the computer is that if you can just immediately erase it. Yeah. That's the only difference, so. That's what I was thinking about, because like you, you're inking your own stuff now. Yeah. He doesn't really even pencil anymore. He just inks. Oh, wow. So is that a real conscious choice to not go more digital? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think there's something to be said for the craftsmanship of creating, a, you know, this physical piece of artwork. Mm -hmm. And I also enjoy the idea of, this is really funny because I have the tremor, that I think this way, that if you make a mistake... How do you live with that mistake yeah. psychologically as a creative individual, as an artist? How do you make that okay for yourself mm -hmm. is interesting to me. So when, you know, I make mistakes all the time because I'm not actually really penciling that much. It's more like I traded the pencil for ink tools. And so when I do something and it doesn't come out the way I think it should, I figure out, okay, how can I fuss with it and make it something I can live with? Or how do I live with the way it is? How do I make that be something that it should be 
Right. Yeah, that sounds it's, like a much more exciting way to work than just undo, redo, undo. Redo. Exactly. Well, it's like exactly. The with the, uh, is it the blueberry? Not the blueberry. The. Um, oh, you're thinking of the uh, the falling man story, the absolute. Uh, it's a Mobius story with a man running along, and and falling continuously, and he just something he did straight ink. Oh wow, and, that's uh, amazing. And you you can kind of tell, but it's also, even if you can tell, it's like. Wasn't well, the major stuff? What's that? The major, what's his name? Isn't that Gruber Dink? Yeah. Um, I thought that I'm was sure. it. Boulet as well. Yeah, but I think with Mobius, a lot of the, the stories are, are exaggerated with, with <laughs> the man, personally by the man, I suspect. <laughs> the, the other thing I enjoy about being able to go straight to ink is particularly like on peripheral background details and stuff. Because yeah. mm-hmm. I'll, I'll have a loose idea of what needs to be there, but what I like is being just on the spot going... No, that's not going to be a bush now. It's now going to be a rock. Right. You know, just like, you know, just whatever, you know, just, you can just do it and it's there. It's Are done. Are you familiar with the, the French artist Boulet? Um, no, I'm not. He's a, and there's a couple of guys, this Korean guy who does the same. This is for, I'm very into planning and penciling and whatever, but there, there are a couple, um, you know, crazy art wizards who can just sit down with a, with a pen and, and look like they're, you know, look like they're, you know, inking something that was, that was, Pencil to invisible pencil. Right, mm-hmm. right. I heard that Travis Ture is a bit like, like right. that. I don't know if it's true. But I, I suspect he's probably so cautious because he's not, right. he's kind of, you know, infamously slow. Right. He's probably so cautious that he makes sure the line is, is right just by burning a hole in the paper of <laughs> <in> his eyes. <laughs> yeah, I think that that's the other thing I appreciate a lot because, you know, the tremor thing is, it's dealing with it is a lot about control over the tools mm-hmm. with my, my hands, right? And so like these guys who can draw so fluidly and with a looser style, and when you look at it, I look at it, I'm like, it's so impressive and I don't feel like I'm missing something because it's not super, super tightly detailed and super right. accurate. There's something I think psychologically or for me that's kind of a fascinating thing. You know, you can kind of envy that freedom. Yeah. Almost the 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 top school of mm-hmm. yeah, yeah yeah they can just like they just it just flows out you know and that's really fascinating to me right. and so I'm really trying to um, to get a lot more of that sort of thing in my work even if it's a tighter style mm-hmm. I, I still want that feeling of spontaneity and I think by not fully penciling something kind of can give me that sensation yeah he what he usually does is a, a non photo blue structure underneath okay. uh, and then you just ink over that but um, it's, it's more usually, and more you're not you're kind of relying less and less on that yeah it's just a lot of compositional placement really here's the arches yeah yeah so and I, I think you know you know I don't want to bag on people that use the computer mm-hmm. you know to, to draw their comics and stuff but I just feel like for my own personal sense of creativity, I just don't, I can't go there. I just can't do it. I, I want to see, I want to see an end result that I can physically hold right. or someone else can physically hold. Well, I also feel yeah. like the artistry is in the high wire act. <laughs> yeah. And of, of, it all could just turn to shit. Yeah. And, right. and, 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 you know, the, I, I like, again, I don't, and I know that people view, Using, he uses computer for some things, mm-hmm. like when he's doing album covers, you know, he's using it 
um, as a tool, but I feel as like he's using tool. it as a, a tool. He's still drawing things, still creating things. And I know a lot of people that do stuff digitally, you know, their argument is that it's a tool and, and you know, I don't want to disagree with that because that's their thing, but I just feel like that's working with the net and that's working, it's not, it's, it's, I don't know, it's kind of hard to say, and I guess it, it would be on an individual basis about, right. about yeah. it. But I, I agree with that. Risk okay. versus non-risk. Yeah, is, risk is the risk versus the, the exciting part of the work for you, the kind of yeah. fear of yeah. permanent? Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think that's another reason why I do some of the, the you know the weird layouts too, because mm -hmm. half the time when I'm doing them, I, I you know, I'm hope, hopefully doing them in a way where I think works, but I don't really know how well they work. Right. But that doesn't mean I'm not going to do it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, oops, it's I sort of like it's worth the experiment. <laughs> yeah. I was, was going to say, whoops, I dropped my pen. Now the whole page layout has to be in the shape. You know, and yeah, I'd rather try stuff and it not be s successful than not try it. And, yeah. you know, yeah. and for the most part, you were so good about, you know, either accepting what's there or being able to fix it. Um, I mean, he's yeah, there's literally no only stuff. been five pieces, I think, you've not used yeah. out of your entire career. Yeah. I just don't... Yeah, there's a lot of guys that will redraw stuff, or and I just can't do that. Well, what like, about false starts or the things where you put down a line and you're... And while it's still just one or two lines on the page, you can throw that page away. And mm -mm. Very rarely. I'll find a way to use it. Exactly. I've done that. I'm like, oh, oh, hell, that line, oh, no, it went way too far. Yeah, what I mean, can I make that too far line become? Sure. You know, <laughs> but, I do that all the time. But again, I think it's because we were poor and we didn't have, we don't have the art supplies for you to be doing that all over again. <laughs> and, and, um, <laughs> and, you know, and also deadlines and everything else. You just got to get on with it. Well, a lot of times, you know? by the time something like that happens, I've already figured out the composition, right? I know mm -hmm. how the page is set up. And so I'm like, I don't want to re-go through all that. You know what I mean? Yeah. I'll just figure out how to tweak what happened there and alter it into something else. So. Yeah, well, that's you know, like when you you don't do the thumbnails anymore because it felt like you were drawing it twice. Right. Okay. Well, and I also felt like when I would do a thumbnail, I felt like I'd be so married to that what that thumbnail's doing that if it wasn't quite working out the way I think it should on the actual drawing. I would sit there and fight with the actual drawing right. to make it like the thumbnail instead of letting the drawing be what it's telling me yeah. it needs to be. So I listen. I, it's kind of weird to say it this way, but I sort of listen to what the art is telling me to do. Yeah. You know, so. Yeah. Matter of fact, like the cover to um, Sandman number two, that painting, when I envisioned that, it didn't look anything like that in my head. When it, but as I started painting it, it started to become what it what you see there. Right. It was sort of telling me what it needed to be, which is, you know, I love that that aspect. At the beginning, we were talking about when you were working with Al Moore, one of the things that I couldn't think of the word, synchronicity. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of what's happening here. Yeah, yeah. And I think I'm going to use that to bring us to a conclusion. <laughs> um, I really want to thank both of you for... Welcoming oh. us into your home. Oh, it's yeah. It's been an amazing afternoon. Feel free to come by again. <laughs> yes. I'm Indian food. Yeah. We do love Indian food. <laughs> I live in the Indian food neighborhood in Vancouver. Oh, sweet. There's <laughs> so. Indian people there, too. Yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> thank, thank you, uh, Wendy. Thank you, J.H. Sure. Um, thank you. Thanks so much.
Kiss away, kiss away.